tonight we'll sing Silent Night, Holy Night, All is Calm, All is Bright. Round yon virgin, mother and child, holy infant so tender and mild, sleep in heavenly peace. Sleep in heavenly peace. Well, that song captures so much of what we find in this story. It uh, invites us to picture a pastoral scene of peace and quietness with the mother Mary holding the infant child in her arms and the angels rejoicing and shepherds marveling. And we thank God that something very much like that did happen 2,000 years ago. But in the world at that time, what was happening was very different than what we're invited to picture here. No one was paying attention to what was going on in this obscure corner of the Roman Empire in one of the smallest of its provinces. There were battles being fought. There was political intrigue going on all of the time. Bargains were being struck. Rulers and governors were rising and falling and attempting to exert control in different places. And in so many ways, it's much like it is today. As we sit here in quietness and peace, we know that the world in which we live is not quiet or peaceful. The Middle East is a powder keg, it seems like, and in Syria there's a a civil war that different major powers are taking sides on their civil war, and it's threatening to blow up into a large-scale conflict. We've recently gone through a destructive presidential election and contested outcome, which portends even more difficult times to come in our political system. And for us, tonight, just as it wasn't back then for most people, all is not silent and calm and quiet and bright. Do you sometimes wonder where God is? It seems like so much goes on in the world as though God weren't paying attention He doesn't seem to show up very often to right injustice and and correct wrongs and to vindicate himself in the eyes of people. And the whole world system goes on as it always has and things rise and fall and leaders rule and then they fail. And why is it that God seems to hide himself behind the events that are going on in the world so that we can't see him at all? And surprisingly, I think this passage helps us to understand a little bit about that, this story that Mary Kay read to us uh, that is found in the second chapter of the Gospel of Luke, the events surrounding the birth of Jesus. We've been considering this recently, and we've come up to this point as we've been looking through the Gospel of Luke, starting with Uh, Zechariah, this priest who went into the temple and had a vision of Gabriel, the angel, telling him that he was going to bear a son who was going to be the promised forerunner of the Messiah that the last book of the Old Testament had predicted. And and then we, we heard that the same angel appeared to Mary, the mother of Jesus, and told her she was going to have a child. And Mary went to visit her aunt Elizabeth and her uncle Zechariah in uh, the countryside and And then there were these two songs that were written, one by Mary and one by Zechariah, that tell us that something tremendous is about to happen. The time of fulfillment has come. And we come tonight to the birth of Jesus Christ. And I want to read the first seven verses. They are much briefer than the story that Mary Kay told to us. 
Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. This is one of the most tightly woven passages found in the New Testament. There's a great economy of words, and nothing is revealed that doesn't need to be known. But everything is said that needs to be revealed. It's a passage that requires that if you want to see any significance in it, you have some other information than what is written in the few words that I read to you. Because on the surface, it simply tells in simple language the birth of a child. But when you peel away the surface, you can see below that some really important truths that we need to understand today. Now, in one sense, this passage is a study in contrast. It it opens and it closes in diametrically opposite ways. It opens with Caesar Augustus, the most powerful man in the world, calling for a census of his dominions. And then it ends in the last verse with a child born in a stable, in an obscure place, wrapped in strips of cloth, born to a poverty-stricken teenage woman and her apparently older husband. It goes from the highest ranges of society to the lowest. And the words are also a study in restraint. The story is told so simply, it never shouts out the significance of what is being said in every word. In fact, the word God nor his name, is used throughout the passage. It doesn't refer to anything that God is doing. And yet, this passage contains the fulfillment of dozens of prophecies that are found in the Old Testament. That the Messiah would be born in an outback village called Bethlehem, not in a world center. That he would be the descendant of King David himself. That his mother would be an unmarried woman, a virgin, and a number of other things. All of these, in many different places of the Old Testament, come together, and this passage draws it like a magnet to bring to fulfillment all those things. But in the passage, there's not a word that tells you that. We learn two things about God from that. From what I just explained to you, we, we, we learn, first of all, that God hides himself behind world events. That is the customary way in which God works, and it's shown in this passage. God allows all kinds of things to go on in this world, things that we regard as earth-shaking events of incredible importance, and he doesn't show up, and he doesn't speak a word, and he doesn't say anything significant about them because he hides himself behind world events. The passage starts with the words, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed or registered. Caesar Augustus ruled the Roman Empire. I know that we're not very aware of Roman history as our ancestors were, but you know Julius Caesar. His real importance was simply that he ended the almost 300-year republic in which a large group of people, a senate, had governed the dominions of Rome. 
he ended it by becoming the emperor who took the kingship of the entire, uh, all of the dominions of Rome. But he only ruled for six years after he came to power, and then he was put to death. And the, the reign beyond him fell to an obscure nephew of his, whom the Senate named Octavian. And Octavian became the most powerful of the 12 Caesars. He took the name Augustus, which means majestic and powerful. And after that, every single one of the Caesars used as part of his name the word Augustus in an attempt to have the same kind of power that he had. He ruled for over 40 years from 27 AD until um, 14, excuse me, 27 BC to 14 AD. And uh, this was the person whose face was stamped on the coins that people exchanged every day in the marketplaces all over the dominions of the Roman Empire. This was the man who held the power of life and death in his hands for millions of people, and he exercised it every day. His name was spoken every day in the Roman Empire, and by many it was spoken with the reverence that you would speak the name of a god. But by many it was also whispered in hatred because of his well-known cruelty. This Roman ruler, we're told, called for a census, that is the counting of every head in the Roman Empire. He did this for two reasons, the same reason governments take censuses today. The first was he wanted the answer to the question, how powerful am I really? How many people are there in these realms that I rule? He wanted an exact counting so he could know uh, in this vast domain, how many people really do I control? And the second question goes from that, how much money should I be getting from all these people really? Because if he could figure out how many people there were, he could extrapolate out of that, this is how much tax ought to be coming out of all these different provinces in my empire. And I'm afraid nations haven't changed very much in why they take censuses even till today. This man, Julius Caesar, was figured uh, to be all that his name implies. He was majestic and powerful. He's really the one who built the empire that existed for the next 400 years. Or at least he thought he did. And that's how it is with world leaders. They pass laws. They give commands. They raise armies. They move people from here to there. They call for taxes. They make earth-shattering decisions that will displace thousands and replace thousands. They take over whole countries. They receive the adulation of people. But what you need to know is that the Bible mentions this man's name one time, and I read it to you in verse 1 of Luke chapter 2. It's the only time he's mentioned. He's mentioned in passing. He's not really a significant figure in the pages of the Bible. His only importance was that he called for a census that required an obscure Jewish man to move from the city where he was working, Nazareth, uh, about 50 miles to a city in which he had been born, in Bethlehem, so that the child to be born was be, would be born in the place where, he had been, where it had been predicted that he would be born. Proverbs chapter 21 says, The king's heart is like a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. As com- uncomfortable as it might be for us, the fact is God is the one who controls all these things, even the heart of kings. And this decision that Caesar Augustus freely made was made under the sovereign purpose of God so that prophecy would be fulfilled. But in the passage as I read it to you, there's not a word that tells you that. It doesn't say God sovereignly 
move Caesar Augustus to call for a census so that prophecy would be fulfilled. It doesn't say that at all. There's not the name of God. There's no statement about God. God isn't mentioned at all. But in reality, his handprints are over everything that's being said here. And so the world goes on, and rulers rise and fall, and tyrants arise and delight in their power for a short time, and they think that they've gotten their own way by luck or by chance or because of their own ingenuity or whatever it is. But God hides himself behind all these events. That's one of the things this passage tells us. In fact, the whole Bible tells us that. He doesn't show his power in the way that we would anticipate that he he would. He does this for two reasons. I, I think one is that God, unlike us, is absolutely secure. Like, it doesn't matter to him, at least in terms of his own person, as to whether we agree with him or acknowledge him or not. I'm not saying he doesn't care about what we think, but what I mean is his sense of who he is and why he's important is not like ours in which we might feel we have to keep our name out there. And God ought to want to keep his name out there so that he won't be forgotten. But God has no such concern. And if in one generation an increasing number of people disregard him, God isn't worried about that. And the second reason is not only is he unconcerned with our attitudes and feelings about him, he also is, um, wants to be freely loved, presents himself in scripture as though he's like a, a rich man who wants to win the hand of a fair maiden, but he doesn't want to win it because he's rich and he's powerful. He wants her only to love him because he loves her. And so God hides himself behind the events of this world. But you can rest assured that Despite that truth, this world is in God's hands. Even though God hides himself behind the events of this world, even though there are times when wrong takes control and right seems to be in the back seat and men and women build up kingdoms that then totter and fall, he's like the unseen director in the story. And just as he was in Palestine long ago, he's still in control now. But there's a second thing we learn from this passage. It's not only that God hides himself behind the events, the world events that we find to be so important, but he also, on the other hand, reveals himself in the insignificant people who obey him. That's another thing this passage shows us. That's why it ends the way it does. I mean, look again at the the last two verses. While they were there... In Bethlehem, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to a firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. There's no interpretation given to the verses that tells you the incredible significance of what's being said here. There's no mention of God. It's simply a story interesting in its details that this young woman could find no place to stay, and so they put her in what we would think of as a stable. Most scholars think it was probably like a cave, at least a a three-sided cave, in which the front had been put on, possibly made of wood, that they would put animals in when it was deeply cold. And that's where she was, with the manger there. And she laid her firstborn son in the manger. It even tells you that she was so poor that she had to rip up her undergarments to make bands of cloth that she wrapped the child in. So it's a very simple story. 
presumably in a cave with animals. It's a picture of poverty and hardship, and it's the beginning of the story of Jesus, the man whom we're told during his life had nowhere to lay his head, nothing that he owned of his own, no house. And at the end of his life, we're told in the words of the prophet that he was despised and rejected by people. So when God stooped to be among us, he showed us something about what he values, what he thinks is important. Now, if CNN had been there that night, had been in Palestine, and they'd been observing, as news people do, what's going on in a country, they would have seen other things. They would have been talking about the census and interviewing people as to what they thought of Caesar Augustus's call for that. They would have been looking in... uh, to the lifestyle of the rich and famous King Herod, the only man ever allowed to be king of the Jews, who killed off five of his wives because he became increasingly paranoid. They would have shot footage of the temple in Jerusalem since there were many thousands of people who had come home to be counted in the census and they had been born in the city of Jerusalem. They might have done a piece on the governors of Palestine, Caesar's governors who were carrying out his will. But none of that was important to God. And We can see what was important to God by answering the question in this way. No one in this room knows when Caesar Augustus was born or cares. You probably haven't thought about him for the last seven days or perhaps the last 700 days. No one remembers this census, knows how many people were counted, has any idea of how many people he ruled over, and no one that I can imagine when he makes a bad shot off the tee, ever throws his club and shouts, Caesar Augustus! (laughs) I mean, Caesar Augustus, from the perspective of the Bible, was just an errand boy and the fulfillment of predictions that had been made hundreds of years before. He was like a piece of lint on the fabric of prophecy. That was his only importance, even though he was, at least for a brief time, the most important, powerful person in the world. But the baby born that night in obscurity is now worshipped by millions, and for centuries his name has been spoken, either with the reverence with one which one speaks the name of God or is used in the most horrible of epithets. So we learn something about God here. God delights in revealing himself in the obscure, out-of-the-way, insignificant people who choose to obey him, like the people did in this story. The world is always delighted in the great events of men and nations and the big things that are happening, and we worry about those who are really rich and famous, but God seems unconcerned with all of that. And there are a few things we should do with these facts, I think. Because God hides himself behind the world events that we find so important, and he reveals himself in the insignificant events of people, however obscure they might be, who choose to obey him, we should spend more time reflecting on God's truth than we do on what the world is telling us. It's not a bad thing to know about the world news. It's good to know what's going on in the world. And after all, during our brief lifetimes, we have to live here and make our way. And so these things have significance to us. But how can we pray and work if we don't see the bigger picture? All we see is the little picture of what's going on that we find so important. 
God has shown us over and over in the Bible, and this is one example, that he doesn't evaluate human life the way we do. He doesn't see things the way we see things. He sees what really matters, what is really significant, and it's usually not the things that make a big splash in this world. Those things don't make it into the pages of God's book. So we need to listen to what God says. We need to read his word and think about it. We also shouldn't hold too lightly to our own leaders because um, it's good to know as Americans that we have an official president-elect. But I have to say, both those in our culture who think that Mr. Trump is the devil incarnate, and there seem to be many, and those who think that Mr. Trump is the moral savior of our country are going to be sadly disappointed if the Bible is true because The Bible tells us that whenever we trust in the arm of flesh, that is, in human rulers, we will always be disappointed and we will fail. So we should pray for our leaders regularly, regardless of who they are and whether we like them. But if there's ever going to be a moral revolution, it will not come politically because it never has. It will only come when insignificant people decide to obey him and to live for him and by his law. In the end, the simple moral choices of the most obscure people are going to rule the day. And that's why the Apostle Paul wrote about 30 years after this to a church that he had founded in the city of Corinth. And he said, consider your calling, brothers and sisters. That means consider what your state was when God called you to himself. Consider your calling. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were noble. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. God chose even the things that are not to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And all he was saying to this little church was, when God called you to himself, not many of you were very important people because that's how God generally works. He works through normal, run-of-the-mill people who choose to obey him. And how you live matters to God more than you can imagine. In some ways, more than the great decisions that are being made in the halls of the world. And lastly, when we examine our lives, we should consider on a regular basis what is important to us. Are the things that are important to us the things that matter to God? We need to take a step back and think about the world and all the things that are going on and recognize that we need to value the insignificant, small, mundane matters of simple obedience. Are we meeting regularly with those people who really matter to God? Are we spending time on his word and seeking to understand him? Are we looking through the right lenses to see the events of this world and interpret what they're all about? That's what this story reminds us of. God hides himself behind world events, and if you look for him there, you will rarely find him. But God reveals himself in insignificant events, and in obscure people who choose to obey him. And if you look for him there, you will often find him. Let's pray. Our Father, again, we thank you that you are a God who is above and beyond us. And we need your reminder that what you find important 
is obedience to you. That you look at some of the greatest rulers the world has ever known, and some of those from the ancient world aren't even mentioned in the pages of your book, and others, when they're mentioned, are given like this one, one sentence. And yet you are doing something different than that, and we want you to do it in and through our lives and through our church. And so we entrust this to you and ask us to teach you to be your simple but obedient followers. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.